Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the History of the Papacy podcast, a podcast about the history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church. Prepare yourself to step behind the ropes and leave the official tour of the story of the Popes and Christianity. I'm your host, Steve Guerra, and I thank you for joining me on this journey. You can find show notes, how to contact me, sign up for our mailing list, and how to support the history of the papacy by going to our website, a2zhistorypage.com. Two great ways to support the history of the papacy are leaving your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. And another really great way to support the history of the papacy is by going and joining us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash history of the papacy. Your support on Patreon goes a long, long way to help keep the history of the papacy sustainable for a long time in the future. There are four tiers of support on Patreon, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome. Each of these tiers represents one of the traditional patriarchates of early Christianity. There are many great benefits to you for supporting the show on Patreon. You will receive early and advertisement-free content, bonus episodes, monthly book drawings, and most importantly, you will be included on the History of the Papacy Diptychs. In traditional Christianity, the diptychs are the lists of bishops commemorated in order of their precedence. The sooner you sign up on Patreon, the higher you'll be on the lists of the History of the Papacy Patrons. Now let us commemorate the Patreon patrons on the History of the Papacy Diptychs. We have Roberto, Joran, William B., Brian, Jeffrey, Christina, John, Sarah, William H., and Judy at the Alexandria level. We have Dapo, Paul, Justin, Lana, John, Steve, and Sean, all of whom are magnificent at the Constantinople level and reaching that ultimate power and prestige, that of the Sea of Rome. We have Peter the Great, Alex the Great, Amma the Great, Frederick the Great, and Jeffrey the Great. And with that, here is the next piece of the mosaic of the history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to say, and I think the people people would probably push back that look at how much evil stuff happened, you know, the Crusades and stuff like that. But look at how much devastation happened in the 20th century, just a couple of years. Nietzsche dies in 1900, and you basically have a mass murder on a scale that this 
mm. has never happened in humanity for about the 50 years afterwards. Yeah, um, that's that, that's a great point people love to, to point out, is say, look at the atrocities in the name of Christianity. And yes, there have been atrocities uh, in the name of Christianity, but uh, they do, it doesn't seem that Christian societies denigrate into the chaos that uh, nihilistic societies do as rapidly uh, and, and to the scale that they do. Um, in just that hundred years, the hundreds of millions of people who died due to the fact that uh, these societies had fallen into sort of a nihilistic state um, definitely have been atrocities committed in the name of Christianity, uh, but I, I don't think on the scale that we saw in the 20th century. I mean, the more you dig into the 20th century, the more uh, horrible things you see that happen. Even if you just take one event like the rape in Nanjing, um, they're just, it, it's millions, hundreds of millions of people being murdered for no reason. Um, just, and again, if there's no moral system uh, outside of man and man can create his own moral system, well, who is to say what's right or wrong then? Who's to say that Raskolnikov wasn't right in murdering uh, the two characters in Crime and Punishment? Who's to say... I mean, you name any crime you want. Who's to say that that's right or wrong? Um, you could say the state has the power to do that. But again, if the state has the power to do that, then they have the power to say, we're the Star of David. Go to a concentration camp. Go to a gulag. They have the right to decide these things. Um, so if you give the state or you give individual men the power to decide that, uh, I, I think it creates a real uh, nihilistic void um, that is just leads to atrocities. And, and that's what Dostoevsky's arguing is that uh, in the absence of God, we need to turn back to God, uh, not that we can create our own value system. Yeah. Does he lay, and beyond this idea of the Ubermensch, because it seems like, and I, I don't think that Nietzsche pl would have planned out any of this, but it seems like the void almost get, it. Ha if it has to get filled, that it's your own personal uh, you know, either the ubermensch or that in yourself, that your goals, well, if you don't have the morality that killing is necessarily bad or if killing is just and dying is just turning off a switch. And I think that opens up all sorts of things that if it, you don't have the morality and let's get things done. Well, if we have to kill certain people or if we have to uh, stop growing crops in this certain region or if we have to massively move people across the country and that kills a bunch of people well you you know you gotta break eggs to make an omelet and that's what you do and without that uh morality in place of something you're it's almost natural that nihilism is going to come across yeah it, it opens the floodgates for um really anything if if your own achievement and your own success uh and getting power is the ultimate goal well that's inevitably going to lead to lots of issues right and if you subscribe to this idea it's almost a darwinian idea which again is another one presented around the same time is this idea of uh, the strong survive so if you're strong and you can get power over the weak that's to your benefit um and that logic follows if there is no God, right? If there is no God, there's no right or wrong. Well, yeah, but but then you're opening the door for anything goes because who's to say what's right or wrong at that point? Um, we can try to create our own value system as a society um, and we can try and, you know, as Nietzsche thought, to to look to Ubermensch, the Ubermensch to, to show us 
but again, if man has no right or wrong, um, nothing greater than them, then who's to say what is right or wrong? Uh, I, I think if you believe in good and evil, which it's a lot easier to believe in evil than it is good, I think, uh, and, and that can be seen throughout history. There, If you believe in one of them, you have to believe in both, right? Again, that's that Jungian idea of yin and yang. Uh, they both exist, right? And life, the joys of life are usually found somewhere in between. Um, but if you dip your toe into Nietzschean ideology and uh, nihilism, you can fall very quickly uh, too far into evil, I think. Um, now, that's not to say everything Nietzsche puts forth is wrong. I mean, he does have some good critiques of Christianity um, and, and dogmatic Christianity uh, and how it drifts away from what Jesus originally preached. And it it becomes uh, less of an emphasis on uh, the principles uh, and the love and the faith and the hope. And it becomes much more of a uh, ideology that, you know, you adhere to becomes much more legalistic, right? Uh, we see that in the church a lot. You do X, Y, and Z, you get to heaven. Well, that's not how it works because none of us can ever do X, Y, and Z. Um, so he does have some some solid critiques of Christianity. Um, so you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Not everything he, he says is is wrong, but I do think that overall this idea that man can create his own value system is just something we've seen throughout history is not something that works. Um, and, and you can argue against that. People love to do the same thing with Marx and his ideas. Uh, they love to say, well, we've never had a pure communist state. Uh, we never have had this happen or this. I think fundamentally, uh, communism presents the same problems that uh, that Nietzschean ideas do as well. Uh, it's this idea of you're removing the state. You're trying to make man the superior being. Uh, you're putting him above all else. And when we see that, society seems to denigrate in the chaos very rapidly. It's interesting. You th- I have this. In studying the Christianity and the papacy, you can kind of see where it, it fits into this ideal that when the church really fails, it's when it turns it turns towards nihilism and doesn't uh, it doesn't live up by its its own value system. And really, the, in any of the societies that are were nominally based in Christianity with slavery and with those sorts of things. It's when they turn their backs on a value system and it, wherever you get your value system, uh, if you turn your back from that, that's when the, you're going to have the nihilism and it becomes much more easy to do atrocities and that sort of thing. Yeah. Nihilism can creep in very quickly. Uh, Nietzsche goes on in some of the quotes I was having and he says, it is in one particular interpretation, the Christian moral one, that nihilism is rooted. The end of Christianity at the hands of its own morality, which cannot be replaced, which turns against the Christian God, the sense of truthfulness highly developed by Christianity is nauseated by the falseness and mendaciousness of all Christian interpretations of the world and of history. Rebound from God is the truth to the fanatical faith, all is false, an act of Buddhism. So Nietzsche, uh, the church does denigrate into a sort of nihilism, um, but they don't try to answer nihilism with uh, man, but they don't answer it with God, like Dostoevsky wanted. They're somewhere in between where they're seeking truth almost above all else. What's true? Um, And we see so many splits in the the Christian church because of that, right? So many different denominations and arguments over little things. Uh, And instead of placing God 
uh, as the center and being the main focus and the main answer to nihilism. Uh, they do kind of turn to own human wisdom, right? Something the Bible advises against, not to seek your own wisdom. And that definitely does have uh, impacts on the Christian church and on some of the atrocities that were committed in the name of the church. Uh, and that's what Nietzsche was rightly pointing out, was that, look, you guys, you're not putting God first. He's not the center of uh, of your worldview right now and your your moral structure. You're more focused on what's true. You're more focused on truth than on Jesus and on God. And uh, I think you rightly pointed out that when the church loses sight of that, it does denigrate into its own sort of nihilism. Uh, and yeah, we see things like uh, being able to, you know, try to, in some sense, justify slavery in the name of God, which is, you know, if you have a true understanding of uh, the Christian faith, that's <laughs> not something that, you know, is being condoned at all. Uh, but when you turn to your own human wisdom, again, a Nietzschean idea, uh, and the church is guilty of it too, you fall into nihilism and we see these horrible atrocities being committed. Steve here. We are a member of the Parthenon Podcast Network featuring great shows like Scott Rank's History Unplugged podcast and other great podcasts. Go to ParthenonPodcast.com to learn more. And here is a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, everyone. I'd like to say something about a new product I've tried called Calitrin. Doctors endorse it. Nutritionists recommend it and customers love it. Calitrin is for healthy weight loss. I have taken Calitrin myself and I can honestly confirm that I've lost weight, I sleep better, and, and I have found relief from a joint injury that I sustained in my arm. Calitrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. And I am reaching of that age where things decrease. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HOP23065 and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HOP230605 and I really do recommend you give this product a try and I'll talk to you next time. They were some of the most powerful men who've ever lived. They waged war, forged peace, and altered the fates of billions of people. And yet, they were just as human, just as flawed as you and me. They were the presidents of the United States, and they are the subjects of the history podcast, This American President. In each episode of This American President, we explore how flawed men have managed this awesome responsibility. To listen now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search This American President on your favorite podcast platform. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. Wars made the United States independent, 
kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Hi, I'm James Early, host of the Key Battles of American History podcast. In each episode, I discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search Key Battles of American History on your favorite podcasting platform. And also, if you want to build a new moral framework, it's really hard to do that from scratch. And there's going to be a lot of problems along the way. And maybe the early 20th century shows that building it from scratch is almost an impossible thing to do when you're not building off of something else. And with all its foibles of organized religion, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, you know, whatever, they have those ideas of morality baked into them. And maybe people have an internal morality, but if there's no systems to build on to, there's a lot of problems that can come when you're just trying to go from scratch. Yeah. And and again, that's really what Nietzsche and Dostoevsky and a lot of those great thinkers were concerned with is we've had our society based on this in human society for so long, uh, the monotheistic faiths. And and even if you look at some of the, like the Mesopotamian and Egyptian religions as well, they're very similar, uh, like Marduk and um, these stories of creation. They're, they're very similar to uh, biblical judeo-christian accounts of creation so they're different in a sense yes but their value structures are still you know fairly similar uh and for so long human society has been built on these ideas uh and it goes back to the ideas of carl jung which is uh chaos and order uh how much order do we need to have in society but how much chaos do we need to have too again it's it's typically somewhere in between uh we can't have too much order and too much chaos uh, and I think the enlightenment and the shift away from uh, the order of the church, perhaps we had too much of it to an extent and, and people got a bad taste in their mouth, but they started to turn too much to chaos, too much to, well, we can create whatever we want. We can create our own value system. We can create new governments. We can do this, this, and this. Well, we saw that that didn't really work. So there's a balance between keeping our old traditions uh, and in exploring into the unknown, uh, into the feminine, the uh, this archetypal uh, unknown, this unexplored territory. But we don't want to venture too far into that uh, and get rid of all the order that we have. Uh, and and Dostoevsky was trying to tell us, let's let's go back to the order that we had uh, because we veered too far away from it. Um, so you don't want to veer too far off that path because again, chaos can can very quickly turn into nihilism. Uh, and nihilism can turn to just horrible, horrible things taking place. Shifting it over to, you're an American history guy, and uh, and hopefully in a future episode, we'll talk a little bit more about the Civil War. But we look at some of these ideas in American history of the Trail of Tears, and they almost seem, and it's slavery in the United States, and it almost seems like a proto uh nihilism creeping in what do you think uh, nominally everybody in the u.s at that time was christian but the these ideas of it of brutally enslaving people and, and that was happening all over the uh the new world but it was pretty bad here in the u.s and then something like the trail of the tears this mass movement that really presaged things like the assyrian uh 
uh, Holocaust and the Holocaust in Germany and the Holocaust of um, mm-hmm. it, of uh, Armenian people. It, what do you think was going on in the U.S. at that time that kind of allowed people to say, hey, let's just do these things that were really brutal? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, and I would argue similarly to what happens in uh, Europe in the, in the 20th century is that the state starts to become more powerful. Um, and not necessarily that, that doesn't mean the church isn't there, but people start putting more faith in the state. They start putting more faith in the government, this idea of manifest destiny. Uh, I'm reading an excellent book right now, uh, if I can remember the exact title of it. It's on the Mexican-American War, and uh, it's a quote from Ulysses S. Grant, A Wicked War, that's what it's called. Uh, and they they talk about Polk and uh, how he really just instigates this war because he wants Oregon. I mean, he wants uh, California. He wants uh, the southwestern states. Uh, Oregon was also going on at the same time with the British. But uh, this idea of manifest destiny, that America deserves this uh, because America is great, because the state is superior to all. Um, When you start to replace the state uh, or replace God with a state or with an individual, uh, you start to see this. When we put too much faith in the state, and too much faith in man, uh, we denigrate into nihilism and we get things like the Trail of Tears, like we talked about. It's very easy to justify something when you remove God from the equation. Uh, and when the state comes becomes more powerful and they start to say, well, this group is another, uh, Jews in Nazi Germany, uh, Native Americans in uh, America. And when you paint that group as another and as less than, uh, and you re- you remove God from the equation, or you twist His words, and you start to rely on human wisdom, uh, then you can you know start to justify these things that went on uh, in America. So I think there was too much emphasis being put on uh, the state and on the government and on America, uh, on American greatness. Uh, and and again, that reflects on the greatness of man because if you say, well, we created this as men and it's pretty awesome, then we must be pretty great. So what we say, you know, should be followed. Uh, and then you start to twist God's words. And when you start to twist God's words uh, and relying on your human wisdom and human interpretation, uh, really anything starts to go at that point. Uh, and then we end up with these horrible things like chattel slavery, uh, the Trail of Tears. Even the war with Mexico, um, that was purely Polk's greedy heart <laughs> at play. Uh, and, and Mexico did nothing to provoke that war uh, that Polk hadn't, hadn't done to them first. So I, I really think it's this sense of putting too much faith in man and too much faith in the government, which is what was going on in Europe with the Enlightenment. We started to put too much faith in man's reasoning, uh, man's thinking, man, man's rationality. Uh, and when we do that, we make ourselves like little pseudo gods. Uh, the problem is, is we're not, uh, uh, at least as far as I know, there's none. So, so then these horrible atrocities can take place. The Mexican American war is one that really, you know, I learned the school book version, probably even more than that, you know, do, uh, doing some different episodes on, uh, my other podcast and, but it never, we visited Mexico city and it never really hit me until I saw this monument that they had set up to a bunch of, um, kids. I think they were teenagers who got killed defending, uh, I think it was Chapultepec castle, but it might not have been, but mm-hmm. I, just beating up on the Mexicans for no real reason 
more than just to beat up on them. And in a way, based on what you've described here, you could say that that's living to your own morality and that I can beat somebody up, but to do it and then we're on the better for it, but with no morality involved in it. That's a scary thing to think about. Yeah, it's that Nietzschean idea of power. Power is good. Um, what's good for you is good. Because uh, for Polk, he wanted more power. Uh, he wanted that land and he was going to get it no matter what. Um, and if you look at other politicians at the time, Whig politicians, Henry Clay, uh, Lincoln, they weren't even concerned with Mexico. It wasn't even a blip on their radar until Polk started to, uh, and the Democratic Party really started to rile this this sense of war up and really started to convince people uh, that this was good for us. This is our destiny, right? This is, and and they, they really just created this swell of uh, public resentment for Mexico that wasn't even there in the first place. Uh, it was something that in, you know, 1841, 42, 43, Polk or any of the, I'm sorry, uh, Clay or any of the Whigs wouldn't have even thought about or worried about. And again, it's, yeah, it's man turning to his own devices and saying what's right or wrong. Uh, because to Polk, that was what was right. That's what he wanted. It was power. It was more power for America. Um, America deserved it because we were more powerful than Mexico. Uh, and again, it's that social Darwinian idea of I'm more strong, I'm more powerful, so I can take what I want. Um, I can basically create my reality um, in a sense. And to flip it, I kind of on its head, the North and Abraham Lincoln, from my understanding, he wasn't super mega religious Christian, mm -hmm. but the whole idea of the North, it, it kind of starts off as a practical where I want to just, Lincoln wants to just keep the union together, but then it turns into a, a, a crusade of sorts. Do you think that that's maybe the flip side of, of Nietzsche, that people living they created their morality that it, there's almost no cost that would be too great to finally end slavery, even though going into the war, ending slavery wasn't the main uh, uh, objective of the North. Oh, definitely. Because if you look at it from um, from a purely, you know, beneficial standpoint, the American people and not only the American people, uh, the people of Europe. Uh, of Britain, right, who, who industrialized this first, they're very reliant on uh, Southern cotton. And Southern cotton being king uh, and being so cheap, that benefits them, right? Because we can make our clothes cheaper, our textiles, and we can sell them for a bigger profit margin. So from that perspective, uh, even though slavery wasn't taking place in the Northern states, they were benefiting from it greatly. And from a Nietzschean perspective, uh, that gives you more power. Uh, you're benefiting from it. So why get rid of it, right? And uh, it is interesting because until it really becomes a crusade or the abolition of slavery, uh, the North seems to struggle. And uh, something that Andrew Hartman, Dr. Hartman and I talked about is that in the West, uh, early on in the war, we see the Union doing very well. Uh, you have Forts Henry and Donaldson falling quickly to Ulysses S. Grant, uh, the victory at Shiloh and uh, the capture of Vicksburg. So Grant's doing well out West, but part of the reason for that, uh, I believe, uh, I don't know if I'll remember the exact, like the 48ers or something. There was a, uh, a group of soldiers out there 
And uh, they were stoutly uh, abolitionists, really, uh, totally anti-slavery. And so they seem to fare better in the West. Now, part of that could be leadership, right? You have Ulysses S. Grant, who, who will eventually win the war for the North. But you also have the individual soldier who's fighting. And when they care about slavery being abolished, they seem to fare much better um, than they do in the Eastern theater of the war. Uh, early on, you have First Bull Run, which is a disaster for the North. Um, you have Second Bull Run, where Pope gets whipped again by Bobby Lee. You have Chancellorsville, Fredericksburg's a disaster, utter disaster for the North. Uh, and it's not till Gettysburg that we see uh, a shift. We see a Union victory, but but even at that, Lincoln was still upset because it wasn't. Uh, there was no pursuing the Army in Northern Virginia. They get away uh, to fight another day. So I, I do think when it becomes this greater, uh, a greater cause than just Union than just mankind, than just something man's created. It does take on a different uh, a meaning for the soldiers. Because again, if you're going to go give your life up for something, uh, why would you fight to end slavery if you're benefiting from it, if it's not morally wrong? And I think we can all agree that slavery is morally wrong, right? Uh, but for us to reach that point, there has to be a reason that it's wrong, right? And that cannot come from us. We can't just say it's because, well, you force, you're forcing someone to do something without paying them. Because from a Nietzschean perspective, that gives me power. That benefits me. So why would I end it? But from uh, a Christian, uh, from the church's perspective, it's wrong because God says it's morally wrong. And and I believe that there has to be a higher power to tell us what's right or wrong. Uh, because again, if if there if it wasn't morally wrong, there was no real real reason to end slavery um, in the American South. Steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors. You, you have your podcast, The Civil War Center, uh, and looking at it, it's quite different than a lot of the other podcasts out there on the Civil War. Do you think maybe your interest in philosophy kind of guides you to look at the Civil War in a different way than just strictly uh, battles and numbers and uh, 10-pound cannons and sort of the <laughs> technicalities of the war and maybe look at it from a, a more philosophical perspective? Yeah, I, that's that's a good point because I haven't thought about that, but, but I'm sure it does. Um, I really like to uh, try to tackle questions that are maybe unanswerable, um, that are maybe haven't been asked before. So there's like, what, 20,000 books, maybe more than the Civil War. There's how many thousands, hundreds that come out every year. Uh, most of the the like chessboard moves of the battlefield have been written uh, and have been looked at. So I do like to try to look at it from a different perspective. Um, and you've mentioned my uh, interview with Dr. Hartman. Even that was something completely fresh. And I had a lot of people comment on that saying, I've never thought about Marx in the Civil War. Uh, like That never came to my mind. So I like to try to get those perspectives that haven't been looked at. Uh, but yeah, also looking at it from more of a uh, philosophical outside perspective, I do try to tie those things in uh, because, you know, how long have we been talking for? If, if the last uh, hour of me going on about Nietzsche hasn't shown that I'm passionate about it, <laughs> uh, I, I love to study it. So so if I can tie it in, I, I try to. It's, it's also funny you mentioned that um, I wrote one article for the Civil War Center website where uh, I look at the Civil War from Carl Jung's perspective. Um, and and I think it's something that history can be looked at that people don't. Um, his idea of archetypes are these ideas of um, 
things that every human cross culture can understand, like birth, death, marriage, um, dragons, right? Like, why do we watch a movie with a dragon and we and it makes sense to us? Because dragons aren't real. We've never seen a dragon, right? But we watch these stories and they make sense to us because they follow an archetypal pattern. You have a hero. Uh, the biblical narrative does it. Uh, Moses is a great example uh, how he leads the people out of slavery into the wilderness. The wilderness is a great archetypal imagery. Uh, the Old Testament's filled with it. Uh, if anyone's interested, I, I have been posting a lot on Genesis um, and on the archetypal in- imagery in Genesis. Uh, but I wrote an article on the Civil War and, and how it follows that uh, psychological pattern uh, where you have Ulysses S. Grant, who's who's the hero, really. Uh, in in the sense, and he has to go through the wilderness. Uh, he has to develop. He has to mature. Uh, you have the good king, the wise king, and Abraham Lincoln. You have the evil king in uh, Jefferson Davis, uh, and and I relate it to the Lion King because uh, the Lion King is very archetypal. Simba is the hero. Uh, Mufasa is the wise king. Scar is the evil king. Uh, that's why Disney movies are so popular is because they follow this archetypal imagery. Uh, and that's something that Jung put forth. Uh, so, so it is something that I definitely tie in this philosophical uh, psychoanalysis. I definitely try to tie it into history as much as I can. It, uh, looking at the Civil War, it really, the, um, how many times these stories have, they even get shoehorned in as the hero's journey and the archetypical story, like the, the, um, movie in the book gods and generals it literally turns them into gods the and yeah. like men of gods of war these these people and it um i think it, it's very fascinating to look at it why people would make the narrative like that to take human beings who had their ups and their downs and putting them into this this whole narrative scope of the hero's journey and the union style it's it's fascinating that we need to do that as human beings it's like baked in yeah it's uh it's why we love star wars or harry potter or you know there's a reason that millions of little kids will read a 100 to 600 page long book you know because if if you gave them i got a book sitting here if i gave a, a little kid this one here they're not going to read it. This is Maps of Meaning. It's a psychology book. But you give them Harry Potter and they're going to read it. Uh, you know, they want to watch Disney movies. Uh, and even as adults, we enjoy these things. Uh, and there's definitely a reason for that. And it's like you said, it's because it's baked into us almost as humans. We understand these things. If you look back at ancient societies, uh, they have the same archetypal imagery. Like I was saying, the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition, the Muslim tradition, which is tied in these monotheistic faiths, uh, faiths, they also have a lot of the same imagery as the polytheistic faiths. Um, a lot of the same, you know, flood narratives uh, is a common one we see. Uh, the idea of the hero dying and rising again, uh, Jesus, uh, Marduk, we see a lot of the same imagery. Uh, and that's something because as human beings, it's in, been ingrained in us uh, and in our society. So we understand these stories uh, much better when they're told that way. Uh, and I, I do think history tends to to fall into that sort of pattern. Um, and then when we tell history, uh, if we want to tell it well, we... Uh, tweak it a little bit to fit that pattern because it's what humans like it really and if you read a book if you read a novel or or you even see a story that doesn't fit into that it's jarring i read a book series a while ago the three body problem and 
it doesn't fit that at all. And it was almost, I read the entire series, but it, it almost felt like torture reading the book that it didn't have a hero's journey. It didn't, the hero uh, doesn't uh, have a triumph at the end. It's just kind of stuff that happens and then it's over. Yeah, I think uh, the movie that I saw that was the most jarring uh, recently, the, the story was Endgame, or not Endgame, was uh, Infinity War by Marvel. Uh, and that one was so popular because the ending is like could not what you expect. The the bad guy loses, right? Uh, and that's jarring to everybody. Everyone walked out of the theater like, wait a second, the Avengers didn't win. Spoiler alert, I guess if someone hasn't <laughs> seen it, but if you haven't seen it at this point, I don't think you will, right? Um, but everybody was like, you leave with this like weird sense of not. There's no finality to it because you're like, well, that can't be the end. It's almost like if you listen to music. Um, and you know, we have chord progressions in music, uh, and we like to end on the root note because it's final. That's why, like, the one of the most famous chord progressions is a one, four, five. Because when you get to five, it builds up all this tension and it's it's kind of uneasy. And then you go back to the one because it resolves it all. Uh, and it's the same thing in storytelling. And when when you end on a five and you never go back to the one, you're left feeling like, well, that was kind of weird. Like, you know, something feels off about that. Uh, because we're just so used to these stories um, where we do have a hero and he has to mature. Uh, he has to face a dragon uh, in, in some archetypal sense because the dragon guards the gold. Uh, the dragon guards the virgin, the princess, right? So in order to get your rewards, you have to go through the dragon. Um, and, and these are archetypal stories, uh, even in Shrek, right? There's a dragon, and a princess in a tower, so even in like the silliest example, we we still have this imagery because we we understand it in a in a deep sense. Uh, I had a great time talking to you. If people, I think people will definitely want to listen to your podcast and learn more. Where can they find out more about uh, your show and the, you know where to get to hear what you're talking about? Yeah. So uh, if they want to listen to the show, uh, it is on all streaming platforms. You can search the Civil War Center podcast. Uh, it'll have a little picture of Ulysses S. Grant as the cover picture. Uh, the last episode we put out was on Stones River, uh, which was a battle episode. Um, but yeah, it's kind of all over the place, like you mentioned. Uh, we talk about books, new books have come out, talk about battles. We talk about you know every aspect of the Civil War. Uh, so you guys can check that out. Uh, I, I write as well. Uh, and have a few other authors who write for me on the civilwarcenter.com so it's the same name the civilwarcenter.com uh, and you can go there and check out you know we have blogs on on all different kinds of aspects of the war battles uh how the confederacy got their weapons on uh you know ulysses s grant's birthday we have all kinds of stuff over there uh so anything relating to the civil war uh and yeah, it's uh, kind of the two main things that that we're working on right now. So people can check those out. I want to thank you so much for coming on. And we will definitely be talking about some issues with the Civil War. And um, I think there's a lot to talk about. I, I'm a big fan of philosophy. And I like to talk about talk with people who know philosophy and not just talk about it like me. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think I know something about it. Uh, as much as we can ever know, right? It's kind of it's kind of out there. But um yeah, there's there's always people and and thoughts that can be explored. So it was a great time getting to share some of that with you.